Welcome to Park Life, your regular deep dive into the theme park and attractions industry. I'm your host, Michael Croker. Chris Guerin is someone I know you're going to enjoy getting to know. He is an all-round performer with a pure love for his craft and for his audience. The Guerin family broadly has been committed to matters of human connection and making a positive difference through generations. Chris, as you'll discover, simply has these qualities in his bones. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, please take the time to rate, review, and share. It all helps in growing the audience and spreading the word. Okay, sit back, prepare to smile, and meet Chris Guerin. You're someone I've wanted to get in the series for a bunch of reasons, because I don't know, firstly, how to describe you to someone who might be listening, because at once you're a performer, a musician, a singer, a producer, director, a mime. There's a bunch of things there that we want to cover. How would you describe yourself? Oh, golly. (laughs) Um, I'm an entertainer, you know. I I get to do what I love. And, um, yeah, all right. Chris loves you is what I like to say. I think that's something that would probably wrap me up. If you say, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Chris Loves Yet and just explain that for people. What, what does that mean? Well, when I was younger, I, I wanted to tell people I love them and I felt like it was um, very, very confronting for me, but also I didn't take into consideration until someone pointed out to me and made them feel uncomfortable that I was telling everybody that I loved them. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm just trying to spread joy. And so I decided to put, my, put it in the third person, make it more of a joke you know more of something funny so while I'm creating joy I'm you know I'm slipping in the lovey bit as well and um, the more I did it the more it caught on and people started saying it back to me Chris loves me Chris loves you you know and it became a joke and then it was one of those jokes that snowballed into something really beautiful and um, yeah it, it made me realise that you know the power that we have you know to be able to tell someone you love them um, and in the end, it made me realise it was all for me. Mm. You know, and it was how, just, how so? Uh, it was it was about me breaking through that barrier rather than someone else's, you know, uh, you know, worry or or fear of you know expressing love. I guess you know, and mm. it was uh, you know I thought I was helping other people, and it was actually helping me. Hmm. You know, it was <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> if we go back before we jump into your theme park life, because obviously there's a bit of ground to cover. There's the experience of Village Roadshow theme parks. There's the experience of Corumban Wildlife Sanctuary and Blinky Bill and performance and producing there. Can we go right back? Can you tell us a little bit of the family history? Because the Girin name, particularly on the Gold Coast, is kind of synonymous with entertainment. Could you tell us a bit of that story? Oh golly, um, yes, from the start. So I'm, I'm number five of seven. Um, my parents, with seven kids, they never held a real job. They uh, did multi-level marketing, very positive, very go get them. You know, we did a lot of uh, positive, we listened to a lot of positive speakers my dad would put on in the car. Um, we had a very um, uh, solid upbringing with, um, you know, solid foundation with mum and dad very very strong in what they believe in um and so they sent us out working when i was about five we were selling drinks on the beach we used to that through summer selling frozen poppers and then went on to 
uh, selling chocolates at office blocks and then as a family we'd all save up our own money from our sales and go traveling so mm. we went to Fiji first and then went to the States for six months and got to go to school over there and just as a young kid opened up my head I remember points where I was I was you know with these nine people mum and dad and seven kids and I'd be standing on top of the, the motorhome and all I can see are trees in the Rocky Mountains and I felt alone and I realized that I was me you know and it was a real prominent point in my life that separated me from the family but I was still part of that um, and that was something that was ongoing through my life um, as I traveled the world you know realizing you know part of this huge entity that amazing um, but still separate from it but uh, it's such a huge foundation for me um, but they um, but as a family we always work together we always mm. you know learnt sales and um, some of the I was I, I waffle I guess no no not at all this is good <laughs> can I ask you was there entertainment in the blood with mum and dad because they sound like they were very entrepreneurial yeah so my dad met my mum in Brisbane he was drafted in you know to go to Vietnam um, living in Victoria I moved up to um, uh, Queensland up to Brisbane I think is where up the barracks there yeah yeah and um, met my mum at a ballroom dancing class and he told us you know years later that if you want to meet the ladies you know that's where the gentlemen are that's where the ladies are and and um, that's where he met mum and mm. it, yeah I think he might have been engaged before he he met my mum yeah. down in Victoria and then it all changed yeah. and then yeah it, he went to Vietnam came back for five days I think instead of getting engaged they got married yeah right and then came to the Gold Coast for the honeymoon so and they're still together now yeah that's a long 50 something years yeah, yeah wow so that's a story in itself oh they're crazy people <laughs> <laughs> I love them <laughs> when, when you were growing up um, with that mix in the family that entrepreneurship the, the confidence of interacting with people what eventually leads or draws you into entertainment and, and specifically into performance where does that right, come, so, come into the story Right, so mum, mum used to teach dancing, and then my my older sister Kathy, my little brother Jeff, and my little sister Don all started going dancing uh, with Miss Willerton on the Gold Coast, and um, I did a spot of ballet in there as well. Um, but from there, my sister got her teaching, you know, a teaching diploma, and then started Happy Feet, which was a which was a um, well, she took over a class down in Tweed Heads of um, you know five ladies I think mm. you know tap dancing and that grew um, and then she started teaching younger kids and that grew and then it just exploded we all started dancing we all started you know getting in there and helping um, but before that we it, I think we took on some ballroom dancing as well I remember which way it went around did that <laughs> bug bite you the performance bug um, so my first performance I ever got on stage to do I, it was to make him laugh. It was like a musical number. I didn't sing it, but um, I got into about eight eight steps and forgot it. Did you? And I remember I could still tell you the grain on the stage, the, yeah. the wood, how it looked. And I that I waited till the song finished and walked off. I bowed, walked off stage and cried my eyes out. My dad had to laugh at me, you know, which I can see is funnier now. How old were then, you? I would have been around ten. Yeah. Yeah. So you never forget those moments. You just said a moment ago you could remember the grain and the look oh, of the wood. It was it was a real the, <laughs> visceral the, moment. Oh man. 
I just can, can, what what did that do to you? What did well, it, it gave me a point of um, you know direction, I think, because the the judo came and came out and said, you you know, if you want to get back on stage and give it another shot, and inside me, I'm I'm screaming like, let's go home, go and hide under a rock. Um, but I knew that if I didn't get back on stage, I'd never want to do it again. Um, so I got back out there. My little brother Jeff was side stage, you know, prompting me with some of the steps. Um, and I got through it and I got a highly commended. Um, Fantastic. But, you know, it took me years to really feel comfortable on stage. I knew I loved it. I loved, I loved being on stage, but the fear would sometimes overtake me. And, mm. you know, there were points where I decided I'd just start dancing harder and stronger. And I, I became a really strong dancer and did it more for me than what was on the other side of that, the edge of the stage. So I just imagined there was nothing there. Um, <clears throat> Can we just, in that space, talk about that for a minute a lot of people will say they get paralyzed by fear and it's that whole thing of getting in your own way no matter what field of work you're in or what passion you have how did you and you just described it then i guess you got out there and you pushed yourself through it but how did you going forward overcome the, the that paralyzing sense of fear with hitting the stage what what became oh. a cure for that oh golly um just doing it just yeah. actually doing it. It wasn't until, I think, getting in a suit. Like like a character suit? A character suit. Well, I was able to hide. Some people might call them mascots who are listening. Yeah. Mascot suits, yeah. 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 Um, I was able to hide, hmm. you know, and still perform. And nobody knew it was me, you know, and I could even give it more, you know. And for years, that was okay. Um, and, I mean, I'd still get out there and sing and, and do it. And every time, I'd just I'd feel like there's a lump in my throat, I'd, you know. But I'd push through it. And, you know, there were certain points where I'd be performing like with my brothers and I'd just focus on them you know and it would always lift me up you know can we talk about that oh, you, yeah. so you're on stage you've, you're you're getting your confidence and dancers coming into your life you, you talk about performing with your brothers at what point does that start to become a bit of a family thing um it was we all performed as a family. Like we used to, when we were little, we used to go to nursing homes and sing, you know, I'm super good and I'm getting better, all these positive, uplifting songs. Um, and so we always performed together, but... Uh, Can you just tell me about that? So you, you, and the, you and your brothers and sisters would perform in aged care homes. Mm. And who would organise these things? Uh, mum and dad, that, well, what I can remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mum and dad. And what would it be? Like a showcase, like a vaudevillian? What was oh, it? Oh, it was just no? go in and sing a couple of songs. My little brother and sister would do a dance. Kathy would probably do a tap dance. Um, they were the more trained dancers at that, at that point. Um, but, you know, Charlie Tremendous, and I'm trying to think of some of the other big positive speakers that we used to do. Um, I used to do a number of Mr. Mediocrity. You know, there's <laughs> not much room for you in here. That, you know, we had these, all these little routines. Um, I think it was just our parents getting us out there, you know, just getting to talk to adults, you know, seeing other other ways that, you yeah. know, life is lived, I guess. Yeah. God, they were progressive by that, the sounds of it. They were pretty amazing, <laughs> you know, and it's it's something you don't see until later on. Of course. You know, and, you know, my dad, I think the last job he had, he was manager at Myers down in, in Victoria when he was much younger, 18, 19, I think. Um, and then, yeah, they, they did your Amways and your promo systems, your multi-level marketing, and that's always seemed to keep us, you know, afloat, um, along with the sales of chocolates. And our chocolate business was huge, hmm. like all over the Gold Coast. 
um, again, you know, the interaction with adults, being able to talk, you yeah. know. Um, when, but, do you, when do you get to the point where you and your, your brothers and sisters decide, okay, let's put something together, and maybe I'm jumping ahead too far, tell me, but we were just talking off mic before about there was a period in your life where you were a boy band, right? Yeah. Can, can, can we just jump ahead into that space? Yeah, and Paul. Paul Guerin yeah. is your older brother? Yeah, he was actually, he worked here back in 94. That movie world? I think, yeah. yeah. It's 95, 90, like in the earlier days. Yeah. That's where he met Kath, actually. Kath, uh, for those that are listening, is our uh, one of our senior entertainment leaders in the business. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, it's only a small town, isn't it? Yeah. Tell, tell me about the boy band chapter. So Paul was a big instigator in that. Um, we started out as Vision, V, Five, you know. Nice. Um, we liked the idea of, you know, Jackson Five. And we're in the 90s, right? Um, or are we in the late yeah, 80s? No, 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 90s. 90s, yeah. yeah. Yes. So yeah. we're in the era of, are we in the era of Backstreet Boys? So um, new, new Kids on the Block? Robbie Williams Band, the Take That, Take Just that. Broken Up. There you go. You know, as we we we. We were in it, I think we were doing it for about a year and then we found out about that and so we tried to contact their manager actually. And I think he was looking for a girl band. Is this pre-Spice um, Girls? I'm not, I, I think Spice Girls were already there. They're already there, okay. Yeah, but it was that ball rolling. Yeah. You know, I think we are getting up into the S Club 7s and that. Oh, yeah, <laughs> now, now we're talking. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so the initial band name was Vision and the V or the Five. Yeah. Because yeah. I think eventually there was a boy band in the UK called Five, wasn't there? Oh. I, I, I'm just seem to have memories. Um, anyway, yeah. so tell us the story. What happens? Well, actually, Paul and I used to have a little jam together, and um, on guitar. Got, yeah, yeah. I got a guitar, and then he got a guitar, and then we wrote a couple of songs together, and then we got on stage at one of my sister's dance concerts, which used to be at the art center. Um, so huge crowd, and and sang this song, and said, if there's anybody out there that you know, I'd love to help us, you know, move on, get through, and um, Rob Mullaney used to be a big recorder on the Gold Coast. I think he's still about. Um, he had a studio up on Springbrook. He used to do the sound at the Art Centre. He said, you're coming up, chuck down a track, and, and that's where it started rolling. And we did that for quite a while. We did a few shows here and there. Um, and then So just in that moment there, how many are in the band? It's five of you? Five boys, yeah. And two of the, the two being brothers, you and Paul? Oh, we're all brothers. You're all brothers? Yeah. So, oh, right. So, there's, uh, so, I mean, so there's mum and dad, then there's Kathy, my older sister. Yeah. And then, so Anthony, Paul, Dan, then me, and then Jeff. So you're all brothers? And all sister, don't yeah. Okay, this is fantastic. So when does it start to take some traction? So we, oh, golly. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> we're going back for years. Um, we, we, got, uh, we got a contract with um, Jeffrey Shoecraft for the Brisbane Bullets. And he wanted to change our name to High Five, and this is before High Five were a, a thing. For those that might be listening in that don't know, the Brisbane Bullets are a basketball team based yeah. in Queensland. Yeah, Brisbane. and they had Boondalls, so huge, big venue, huge venue, and and people used to, you know, it used to be quite full, quite a full crowd there. Um, so they used to just want us to sit on the side of the court, literally on the court, at a desk, and then whenever something would happen, you know, time out, we'd get up and do a quick little dance or you know, have a head flick contest around the whole, you know, we just had fun. We just had fun and we ended up with a little fan club and we're signing stuff and it was just it was a different world. And we got to do the, the film clip and the, the jingle and so it was like right in all of a sudden they gave us new shoes and we had a costume and yeah. you know, it was it was quite an amazing experience. And then um, after that, I think we decided to 
head over to the UK. Paul and Jeffrey went over first, and then Paul's like, you guys got to come over and do this. So everyone was committed to giving this a good run. It was, um, yeah, we'd have a, a blast at it and then a sort of little break. And then I think Paul went off and did a cruise ship for three to six months right. and then came back and then we'd give another, you know, uh, another hit. I think I was working here at the time. At Movie World? Yeah, and yeah. I was in a relationship too, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, that takes over sometimes. Yeah. But we all ended up in the UK, like just giving it a shot. What was that experience like? Oh, it was mind-blowing. Um, I think I was around 20, 21. I think yeah. I turned 21 over there. Were you and, gigging? Um, yeah, so we, we had quite a few shows over there, yeah. different clubs, and um, that was quite an experience. But the uh, industry itself is quite, quite different to what we expected, I think, and you know, what they want from you and what you want to give them. You know, you know it's, uh, you know, without going into too much detail. Yeah, there's a bit of darkness yeah in, yeah uh, and yeah everybody knows george michael you know yes. recorded him at some point you know everybody just had the same story and the same stories yeah uh, you know it is really about who you know and you know what you're willing to do you know how long in the uk doing that? two years and how did that end ultimately um well my visa ran up um so i came home um i met a girl over there as well who was an australian and we started writing music together and it's sort of i think we all we all wanted something different. So I think we had to sit down and, you know, you know, what do you want to do? And our time was running out sort of with our visas. And I think Paul came home and moved down to Sydney and we all sort of just ended up doing, a, you know, our own, own things. So I ended up in, where was I, in Sydney, busking in, in Bondi for about three years. So wow, it was amazing, you know, so. So the band just kind of naturally, that yeah, kind of just naturally yeah, my broke brother, down. Yeah, my brother. I think he wanted to come home and marry his girl, and yeah. you know, you know, a few of those little, little things. And tell tell me about busking in Sydney. What three years, and you're just living the life of an artist. Yeah, yeah. I had um, I had my Chihuahua, little Rambo, and I had my <laughs> my my partner at the time, Cat, and so we just we wrote songs together. So yeah. we we sat there and we just played our own stuff and um, got quite a nice little following down there. Um, ended up going into Bond FM and playing songs. I think our biggest audience was 13.6 million people. On a live broadcast. Right, yeah. which was um, mind-blowing. Yeah. You know? um, and, you know, I'd always get so nervous in front of the microphone. You know, there's nobody watching and I'd still be like, uh, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, that fear was still there. Isn't that know? interesting? It, yeah, it, that followed me for, for years and I'd just push through it, you know. And I'd... I felt like it would always take a bit of my performance away and I knew it wasn't until I'd break through that that I'd be able to just, you know, open up too. Um, and that was until I started working at the Sanctuary actually, down at Corumban. But I was, I was managing, supervising a team and I had to get out on stage and host. I couldn't just be in a suit, you know? Yeah. And I had to, like there was no, you know, no two ways about it. It's an interesting thing, I think, with a, an artist or a performer, there's particularly in those formative years, in order to be great at it, you have to be vulnerable. And in order to be vulnerable, you have to be open. And in order to be open, you have to move past fear. Mm -hmm. So it's always a, an interesting challenge for, for someone living a life like you've done, in a life in performance and in giving. And it's, I think that's why I think it's, for me, the greatest of all art forms, because it's such a human 
experience and it's about vulnerability yes, and like standing naked on the stage it is yeah and and saying here i am and if it's not authentic an audience will know yeah and if <laughs> and if they don't believe you there's no there's nothing to be done right it's it's all about as you know it's all about that connection and that authentic sense of humanity but obviously your desire to do that continually drove you and i think some of that fear just reminds you you're alive too it can be healthy oh, I, you know um, i think the fear sometimes a little bit of that can can keep you honest i think it drives you sometimes too i i wasn't pressured to get on stage but i knew i had to mm-hmm. you know like especially if the family we, we were performing as a family you know there wasn't a you know you sit out we got this it was everybody's in everybody's in <laughs> so i think that that idea and you know always knowing that i'm gonna have to do it I'm just gonna you know just deal with it i'd still be the same when i get off stage still scared um but it wasn't until like i said the sanctuary where i got to do it every day i was performing and i think it was when i started watching myself back on video i'm like oh i, I don't look as bad as i thought or i don't you know where i forgot it, it was only a second when it felt like you know five minutes on stage where i was just uh, you know mm. um and that sort of went, oh i can do this you know and it was more about me knowing that i could do it rather than what anybody else was thinking mm. you know which we use we seem to take that on so much you know it's yeah i often say crazy, to, right? i often <laughs> say to people if i'm doing some coaching <laughs> with public speaking that your audience isn't thinking about you as much as you think they're thinking about you and you're already ahead of the game because your audience is hardwired for you to win. No one's sitting there waiting for you to perform, hoping it's a train wreck. Yeah, no. They're sitting there with an expectation and an excitement that this is going to be great. I wonder when it starts. And all you've got to do now is let level up to that or exceed it. But yeah. the audience is never sitting there thinking, great, we've spent this money, we're sitting down. I hope it's a terrific train wreck. Yeah. And, and it's, it's reminding people that when you get out of your own way, the best of you will come through almost every single time. But that's a thing that happens over the course of a lifetime through repetition, like you said earlier. Yeah, well, <laughs> I remember getting off stage after performing one day and I, was, I wasn't <clears> nervous. And I, you know, I was like, I miss that feeling, you know? Yeah. I miss that. <laughs> but that was with me for so long in my performing years. Like I just, you know, just really, it, once I got past it, it was amazing how much more I could give. When know? did the I still thing, get nervous? I still. I think the know. nerves are, are a good thing. It's just that's the nervous system reminding you you're alive. You know. Yeah. When did the theme park journey begin? Well, I was um, sitting at school, fifteen and a half, and I said to Mama, "You know, I feel like I could be making more money. You know, rather than sitting at school, I think I could be out there working." And they agreed that I could, you know, leave school early. So I left before the end of grade ten. Um, I got a job at Dreamworld just after I turned 16. Um, Kenny Koala, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I did that. Um, and then they threw me into a role where I was doing Ricochet. So I was actually out there. Like a Western a show. Yeah. Can we go back? Oh, golly. Kenny Koala, for those that don't know, is a, was an and is an iconic character within the, the Dreamworld story. Did you have mentorship going into a role like that? in terms of the, the art of bringing a character suit alive? I, the first time I jumped in a character suit was when I was about 12 and I was like a giant tomato. <laughs> um, and so I'd done quite a, you know, a few different bits like that. Um, 
but no, I just went for it. I just just jumped in and people hugged me. I was just like, well, that's great. Like, I'm just, I'm a professional hugger, you know? And there's nothing but love there, you know? Did you have any thought about, okay, who is Kenny? And, and what is his, how does he move? Yeah, what, what? Um, I, was, I was quite young. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was quite, I think I came across very confident. Yeah. Um, just how I was taught to hold myself. Um, so I would just give it a shot. You know, and if, if they said, great job, I'd, I'd keep doing that, you know, yeah. and then I'd, I'd work on that, that idea. So, um, when do they tap you on the shoulder and say, let's get you out of suit and open faced performance? That happened really quickly. Um, that was my audition was the first time I'd ever done a monologue. Huh. Um, I never did the drama at school. I was too scared, you know, I'd never put my hand up to do that. Um, so it was, I, at the audition, I didn't know anybody there. So I thought, well, can be whoever I can be whoever I want you know I could so I just went for it and um, it was down to me and another fellow who I ended up working with here um, Dan Brady and I, I got through it and they loved me I think I did a handstand at the start of my audition and they saw me do that and so I, I had their attention so then they're watching me throughout the you know the different processes the dance part and then the, you know the talking about yourself and then the script and I was Oh, I, I just did it. I yeah. just went for it. Um, scared as I was, you know, and I got the job. And then next minute, I'm the, you know, the lead in the show for the Ricochet, and um, which was the lead character, yeah. Rick. Um, so that was, you know, sixteen. Yeah. Walking out of the hut and the paddle steamer comes around. Yeah. That. Um, and yeah, so that was, that was great. That the guy who was the um, the manager of that team was. I know back then I thought he was just <clears throat> so mean. Oh, you know? really? Just really mean. Just a taskmaster. Yeah, like the first show, he, he came over and he's first show, are you nervous? I said, yeah, and he poured water on my crutch. What? Right? It, uh, and I was just like, what are, you, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, you know, have a great show. What does that mean? I think, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I still <laughs> so, don't know. So... so. <laughs> So how long? Just to jump ahead a little bit, we could get in the weeds on that one. How long was that experience for you there? I was there for just under a year. Oh, okay. Yeah. And in that time, you've 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 gone from character suit to open face performance and character work. Yeah, and roving characters, and that, at that point, they they allowed us to, you know, what do you want to dress up today? You know, we had a few different characters okay. we could get out and do. And you're improvising. Yeah. And strengthening so that muscle. I was doing street theatre. I didn't even know it. You know, yeah. I'd never done that before. So it was just, you know, go for it. Create character. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, was, I had one where I was walking around um, a bit of a, you know, a bit slower character. I think back then you could do that sort of thing, you know, thicker glasses and yeah. cleaning people's um, prams. Yeah. You know, yep, you can go, you know, and then dressing up as a convict and running around the, yeah. you know, the, where the jail was there. And Is this where you were strengthening, I guess, elements of mime and learning that your body was a tool as well, even if you weren't doing it unconsciously? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you know, thinking back on it, you know, that was a real growth area for me. Um, but I think I, I didn't see it like that at the time. No. You know, I was just did the next thing, um, you know, nervous as I was. You just go, go for it, just go for it, just do it, yeah. you know. Um, I don't think I gave myself as much credit as I probably do now, looking back on it, yeah. you know, because then I, it wasn't that, you know, it was yeah. just, just do it, you know. My yeah. dad was a very much, just do it, just, just give it a shot, you know. Yeah. Just get out, get out there, do it, you know. So, 
with that in mind and also that I think I put a lot of pressure on myself that I had to as well mm. you know with my family just they were so amazingly talented I always felt like I was a bit of a fraud you know mm. but I'd just give it a shot anyway um, why a bit of a fraud what do you mean by that I, you know I I think we didn't have the I didn't have the training that you hear some of these people have you know right. I didn't you know I didn't I, I didn't go and do the classes I didn't you know go and learn any of those things I just did it mm. how I thought mm. it would be done you know so I almost felt like I didn't have the you know I wasn't certified to do it I didn't yeah. have the you know the criteria or the you know it's, it's interesting and I, I can tell you this and I think I've told you before off mic that in my 30 years of theme parks I would squarely put you in my top five of all-time best performers without a second thought uh, and for no other reason as I think I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago when we, we bumped into each other is the authenticity of the work and the fact that you understand instinctively this is for them it's not about me I'm a vessel and this is for them and I've always preferred working with talent that understands that than the talent that is so self-assured, so rehearsed, yeah. so trained, and it becomes more about watch me do this for you rather than uh, this is only for you. Yeah. yeah. And you, I don't need you to sit and look at me or watch me. I, just need, I need you to feel something. And I think there is a risk sometimes in being too trained, too rehearsed, hmm. uh, at the cost then of being authentic, be vulnerable. You've talked a lot already just about overcoming fear and that sense of nervousness. And I think that's all terrific. I think that's part of your superpower is the ability to recognize that in you and then do it anyway. Yeah, right. I think that's part of your superpower rather than an Achilles heel. Sometimes the Achilles heel can be, I'm in my own head thinking about this. I mean, look, I've, I've seen people play guitar. We've got guitar in my family. And I've seen people play guitar that are technically brilliant. And you, you are impressed at a mind level. And then I've seen someone playing an out-of-tune acoustic at midnight on a street corner coming out of a restaurant. And that person's got their eyes closed and they're slightly off key singing a blues number and it puts tingles down your spine yeah. because <laughs> you feel them yeah. and you think oh that guitar's slightly out he's a little pitchy but he is eyes closed transporting you into a place and being vulnerable yeah, it. and that i've sometimes had of a, a more satisfying experience watching people like that yeah. than uh, people that are technically uh, skilled yeah. As, if you can have a balance somewhere in the middle, terrific, you know. I think it was, um, you know, getting back to, I went from Dreamworld to here. You know, this was like the, the place to work, you know. This was where I went, you know. This was the top of the pops, right. Um, and it wasn't until here that I, I think I got that sense of performing for other people. Mm. You know, I was always so within just trying to get it right and mm. not mess up. And I was walking out of security and I was going up past, you know, there was a family walking past and I, I was Bugs Bunny, I was friends with Bugs Bunny that day. And um, I was back when we used to pick the kids up and I actually picked him up by his ankles and hung him for the photo. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so, didn't drop him. <laughs> Swing him back up, you know. 
So I used to do crazy little things like that. Anyway, I saw this family walking out and the little boy was talking to his parents and he was saying, so I can't wait to get home and tell grandma and granddad about Bugs Bunny picking him up. And I was like, oh, that was, that was me. I didn't say that to them, but I realized that they were talking about an experience that I had a hand in. Mm. And we, uh, we should say for the record, we certainly don't encourage picking up children by their ankles and swinging them around. This is early days. <laughs> <laughs> We tested, see what we could do, what we couldn't but, do, right? But you, but you make a good point that um, you've, you've, you've overheard a moment where someone has talked about the value of what you've done in the day. What do people not appreciate about the art of bringing characters like that alive? And we, we don't have to get into the specific characters and keep some of that magic there, but what do people not understand or appreciate about that as a craft? Because it can be one of those things, I think, that gets taken for granted. Oh. And... I'd mentioned to you before, you're easily in my top five of all time finest, without a doubt. Um, we had a fellow at Wonderland Sydney who would be in that top five as well. And he played a number of different characters. And on stage was electrifying. And you just knew when you got to the venue and you were watching a performance. We had the Hanna-Barbera characters at that part. And I knew almost every time, and I'd look to my 2IC and say, ah. Oh, such and such is inside such and such. And she'd go, yes, he is. <laughs> and because everything that he could give you was being given in the moment. Yeah. And that would be on any given day of the week, whether he knew you were in the audience or not, because he, loved, he genuinely loved bringing those characters to life. What do people not appreciate about the challenge of that kind of work? Oh, it's... I... I think it's it's an absolute compromise when you hop in a suit. Like you you you're compromising your vision, your your breathe, everything, everything. It's it's hot work. It's 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 um, brain melting sometimes. It gets that hot, you know. Um, How do you move through all of that then? I think I, I love it. I yeah. love it, and I push myself. You know, um, I like to push myself in a physical way. Where I was very sporty as a kid, so mm. I was doing the half marathons and. I get to the point where I should just be lying down, but I have to push it further, you know, give it more. The Guerin um, family sounds like a family of overachievers, can I just say? Um, you're doing half marathons, you're in a yeah. boy band, you're traveling the world. My parents are crazy, <laughs> I think I said that. Um, they gave us the best opportunities, which I'm still realizing, you know. When I was so. at uh, Wonderland Sydney, I, I thought it might be a nice thing. I was relatively new to the role and I thought, well, maybe one day I should go out with the, the team and do a suit run. And I'd been a big fan of the Hanna-Barbera characters myself, so having those characters in the park was exciting. And I thought, I always loved Magilla Gorilla. And I thought, well, that looks like a fairly forgiving suit. It's large and it's got, it should be kind of spacious. Had a very small head, however. And <laughs> I hadn't thought of any of these things. And I'd said to my 2IC at the time, hey, I'm going to surprise the team tomorrow. I'd like to go out and do a run in the morning and I'll go out as Magilla. And she looked at me and said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I said, just give me a little bit of training, a little bit of awareness of how to do this and that and let me talk to the dresser and make sure I know what I... So we do all that. The buzz gets around and I'm getting changed in the dressing space with the team and I'm going out for a run. And my chaperone said, okay, Michael, now here are the signals if you're having any issues signal A, signal B, and then we'll exit you out. So, and I remember thinking, this is taking like two people to dress me. And 
there's clips yeah, and there's bracing <laughs> and I'm like well hang on what happens if I really want to get out of this thing you know and we it was the shortest character appearance in the history of that park I think I remember as the head went on not being able to see through the mesh of the eyes I couldn't relax my vision yeah. to look through so all I could see was mesh but I didn't want to alert anyone to any of this so I just played it cool as cool as I could held hands with my chaperone, walked out for the meet and greet. And all I can hear is my breathing. So all I can hear <laughs> in my ears is the sound of my breathing cycling through the head. And all I can see is the mesh and then a faded view of the environment behind it. I can't relax my eyes to see through. So now I'm getting claustrophobic and anxious and I'm sweating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we're standing there and I remember her saying to me, you okay, Magilla? And I'm barely moving. And I'm thinking, you, you can't go back in three, four minutes. But you've got a team of people here. And one of the signals was to hold her hand and squeeze it. And so I remember reaching over, are you okay? And I gave it a squeeze. And I'm like, yeah, I'm out. Anyway, it was, uh, that became the running joke for there ever after. Yeah, right. And I learned a valuable lesson. And I also learned the, uh, the respect. Yeah, that's The excellent. respect for, for the art which it is, of doing that work. Yeah. That it isn't to ignorantly say, hey, sure, let me jump in and show you what I got. There, there is everything you just said. There's a, you have to be able to mentally discipline yourself. Mm. You have to adjust your body and regulate your, your nervous system. Then you've got to find character. Then you've got to yeah. be present and then create moments for people. It's a challenging gig and anyone that takes it lightly doesn't know to respect it and that was the day when i learned the value of respecting the art form of bringing those suits alive oh it's 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 such a great craft you know Mm. and like you said i don't think i ever really thought about any of that not until i started training people you know and then i realized how much there is to it and how much i knew about it too you know it wasn't until like yeah it was there's a yeah a lot more to it than just chucking on a suit. What year was it when you started working with Corumban Wildlife Sanctuary? Oh, so that was 2011, 10. And what was the role there? Actually, it's a, no, sorry. That's when I came back here. So it would have been 12, 11, 12, 2012. And your brother Paul was there at the time, right? No, it was 215. 215, <laughs> maybe? <laughs> time flies. I was there for seven years. So seven years? Yeah. Well, wow. yeah. So your brother Paul was there in the role of, was it entertainment manager? Yeah, he was looking after entertainment. He was looking after education. He was looking after the bird show as well. Like the, um, so there's like two, two separate, well, there's bird show and then there's the people who look after all the birds in the park. And um, so he, and, and also liaison with community as well. And Paul is a go-getter. Paul is go, go, go. Amazing, amazing amazing person to work for um out of all my brothers i probably work with paul the most he was more musical when it came to that side of things seems like he was a bit of a mentor for you too paul was a beautiful big uh, both my big all my big brothers are amazing yeah beautiful relationship with them all that's great um always looked up to him my the three older siblings always seem like adults to me huh. you know mm. um being number five you know so I've, and still like that you know i think i was saying to dan the other day that they're still, I still look up to them like that, you know, that's, they'll always hold that position, mm. you know. Um, Were you guys a good force 
creatively for Corumban, do you believe? You must have been at the oh, time. I think we, uh, I, I know we added value there. Yeah. Yeah, big time. I know we added love. I know that I, I, I know I changed that place. Yeah. Um, what were you doing? I, I was working for Paul, so I was supervising the Blinky Bill team. And at the beginning we had four, uh, three characters plus a host on stage. For those that don't know who might be listening in, uh, Blinky Bill, created by Euron Gross, was an iconic property or intellectual property uh, in Australia. He's a, a koala who lives in this, uh, his own universe and it's been a subject of feature film, animated series, etc., etc. So it's no small thing to be able to handle that property coming alive well he yeah they just um were reviving him so yeah. they actually changed him up a bit he you know he went from brown eye to blue eye and um they changed his voice um and that's where it all began so paul rang and said hey we're auditioning for a voice for blinky bill for the park it needs to match the new movie because they changed his voice for the movie i can't remember the actor's name so i went into mark watson's studio um studio proof did a couple of lines they sent it off um Ten other people, I don't know how else to do it. Um, throughout the world, and came back and I got the job. Hmm. Um, so recorded the show, and then I called Paul one day and I said, "Hey, is there any other work going down at Grump? And I'd love to switch out. You know, I've been friends with Bugs Bunny for about four years at this point. Um, another amazing time here. Met my beautiful partner Mylan. Hmm. Um, so then I went down, started working for Paul, and it." Um, it was great. What was the transition like to go from performer to suddenly being a creative leader? What was that like? I um, thinking back on it now, I, I, you know, I could have prepared myself better, but I didn't know that. You know, which is one of those things. I think I'm a you know learn on the spot guy. Um, I had previously taken you know with Mark Eady, we took a few shows over to Indonesia uh, back in '98, '99. Um, where I got to, you know, sort of work with a team of people, um, but it was, you know, I sort of reflected back on that, you know, but also having Paul Air as my boss, he was very excellent. He wouldn't help me too much, he'd still let me make my mistakes, you know, because that's, that's where you learn and grow. Um, so it was, it was amazing. It made me realise I knew a lot more about what I did than what I'd ever given myself credit for. Um, made me realise I knew a lot less about what I did you know as well so what were you doing you were putting together a live production so yeah Paul had written the show with Mark Watson um, I got to record the vocal and um, so we were training up the the dancers and the and the hosts as well so there was a whole script that was about a 20, 20 minute show mm. um, and so yeah it was just a lot of we did a lot of training about a month of training getting the suits right. Um, actually, your mate from Sparklight, uh, oh my God, his name has just left me. He was one of the bananas, I think, back when. He was working with you down at Aussie. Oh, okay. Um, oh my Lord. He makes character suits anyway. He, oh, you're talking about Jonathan Gowland. Yes. Yes, he used to have a company called Promotechnics and created all the Hanna-Barbera suits at right. Wonderland Sydney and was a former suit performer. Yes. So he yeah. had complete empathy and understanding of how those, how to build the best quality suit from the inside out. Yeah, and we yeah. talked about you quite a lot, actually. It was yeah. It was, yeah oh, well, so. but we should save that for off mic because I'd be keen to know what Jonathan had to say. Yeah. 
I'm only kidding. So, and it's no small, it's no small thing to put together a 20-minute live production film with choreography and coordinating all those moving parts. So, how long did you say that period took? Um, the training. The, yeah, to bring that together. We we took a month, a month to, yeah. to get it up and going. And that um, was new for oh, that, that park was, too. That kind of thing hadn't been oh, done before. Is, yeah, Paul. You know, I think they'd talked about it, and then mm. Paul seen heard something about it and said, "Hey, we should really run with that." Um, got the board on side. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars. Mm. You know, to set up a new stage, um, backdrops, costumes. We had two of everything, um, which is, as you know, you mm. know, one suit's not cheap. Mm. You know, um, and so, and then getting in the suits and then working out how they work. You know, what looks good, what doesn't look good. You know. Um, it was it was amazing. It was amazing. What gave you the most satisfaction in that process? Uh, I think uh, it wasn't my baby yet. It was Paul's baby, you know. So I was sort of it, it gave me amazing satisfaction to work with my brother, to work with these amazing talented people, to to be the the, the boss man as well. Mm. You know, I I found out I really enjoyed that. You know, um, that that. You know, oh, what's the, what am I, what am I going for here? The responsibility? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that, you know, everything that happens is your responsibility. Mm. So if something goes wrong, then you've got to make it right. You've got to find a solution. It taught me how to, to um, deal with people as well. Um, performers, you know, mm-hmm. it's a um, different story when you're managing as opposed to just performing. Yeah. Um, which blew my mind. Because uh, it was it was like I was a different person all of a sudden, um, and how I was treated by the people as well. It was it was it was, it was um, quite eye opening. Um, but having Paul there too, and it, that was, you know, I couldn't put I, I put words on that. I don't know. It was just mm. a, a, you know, it's just amazing support there. And nurturing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and honesty, you know. Yes. You know, and um, and that's super important as a performer. It's a challenging thing, I think, for performers to make that transition into leadership because they're they're not the same thing. And you can have empathy and sympathy where it's required, but you also are required and burdened with leadership and being responsive, being attentive, and it draws other things out of you. Mm. And for a lot of the time, it can often be that you are projected upon as, uh, as an idea rather than a human being. And you have to manage that as well, yeah. you know, yeah, because, nice. <laughs> and it's the challenge, I guess, is particularly for performers, because by definition, the good ones really are vulnerable and want to be loved sensitive. and sensitive. <laughs> and then suddenly in those positions where you are burdened with leadership, sometimes decisions need to be made that will appear for some people to be insensitive, though in the best interest of the business. So there's always this sort of tightrope. Um, that it can be challenging for the performers to 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 make that transition. So I, I completely understand it. Can we, can we just talk about how long was that experience at Corumbin? So I was there for seven years. You mentioned um, that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, Paul left, I think, probably four years into my... Yeah, yeah. So the last few years I was there, I was, you know, um, Paul had left, so I took on a few of his roles, yeah. like the writing, you know, writing new shows, and COVID hit, so it gave us an opportunity to to get in there and change some stuff up. So Can I just ask you, the guy that arrived there year one to the guy that left year seven, 
what what did you take away? Who who um, were you after seven years of that? Oh wow! Um, I I learn about working with people from a a, a supervisor position. Um, that was really quite like I said eye opening. Like that really did um, blow my mind how different people treat you. You know, um, best friend when they need the roster fixed. You know, <laughs> and when it wasn't right, you 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 know you're one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it taught me a lot of things. I, I did start a manager's course there when we were there and mm. something went sideways with the company they were using. I can't actually remember what happened. But doing that course and learning things and I think that course gave me words to, or at least the lingo to what I was already doing, you know? That's so great. again, it was like when I started teaching about suits, I, I realized I knew a lot more about it. I mean from that person that they want to now I could tell you a lot more about managing and people because it's not about it, it's about people mm-hmm. it really is um, I think that's everything that's, it is that's, yeah. you know, yeah. and if you can you know and I think that's where that when I was 18 and that family was walking out that made me realise it's about people it's only you that know? Yeah. you know and that that was the best thing that ever happened to me as a performer mm. you know that made me just go pull your head out you know like you know you've been trying to work out what you're doing this for and you know as much as you what you get from this is amazing you know it's what what you're giving and you know and to hear someone talking about what i did without even knowing it was me um gave me this real sense of uh of responsibility like mm. you know can you when you look back at your life and your creative life i'm sure there's many could you describe a moment of real pride where you looked at something or felt something and thought, this is as proud as I've ever felt? Um, so when I got to start writing my own shows, um, without the help of Paul or, you know, because um, he was, he's quite a rock for me, I've spoken, and, and all my, my family are at some, you know, some aspects, but when it came to that thing, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I wanted to show him that I could do it too, you know, other people as well, I think that was really important to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, that uh, watching something that I've written all of a sudden being sung by a character on stage, hmm. which uh, which was my voice anyway, which was really cool too. So hmm. I'd be on stage singing with myself, you know, as Blinky Bell, and I'm the host, you know. Um, moments like that. But I think that when that first show went up and I was sitting in the audience watching hmm. it all unfold, and I wasn't up on stage with them. Yeah, that was um. That was beautiful. I think that one of the most amazing points, I think, was playing the piano on stage, nervous as hell. My fingers weren't working properly, but they were still doing it. Um, looking at the audience and then, don't do that again, you know? And then seeing my four brothers standing on mics in front of me really, you know, gave me a, a sense of support and I'm not in this by myself, you know? Yeah, that's wonderful. And that was, um, that was beautiful. That what was, motivates you now with all these years already under your belt, what what motivates you? What's your fuel? We've just worked together at Movie World during an event term here called Hooray for Hollywood, where you were bringing Chaplin alive on the streets, for example. You were as engaging as ever. There doesn't seem to be any loss of passion. So what's your fuel? Oh, golly gosh, I just love it. I, I, you know, I try and think about why do I, what is it about that I love? Um, I'm very expressive, I think, you know, and it is quite an outlet for me. 
um, I love to see people smile. I know when someone's smile, they're healing, you know, <laughs> and if I can do one, you know, just that one person, I know that I've made a difference there. That's you know? a beautiful line. When they're smiling, they're healing. Yeah, well, you know, and if you can get them laughing, then they're even getting better, right? Like, so, um, to be able to do that with just, you know, raising my eyebrow or, you know, just tip my head a little bit, you know, it's, it blows my mind that you can have any sort of, you know, power like that. Well, it's not power. I don't think that's the right word. Um, Influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is a power. Like, I think, I think we need to be aware of our own power, yeah. you know, and what we can give. Power and, for good. You know, regardless of good or bad, we, we make a difference. Yes. You know, and that was what I, you know, with writing the Blinky Bill shows, that was one of the lines, you know. It doesn't matter what you do, you're making a difference. So let's make a good one, you know. Beautifully said. I tell a story and I've told it several times during this podcast and I've told it whenever I'm doing a keynote where it relates and I know we've talked about it many times but I think as we come to an end it's important just to highlight it here because I would always say to people I would always tell them your name and I, for me it was always a way of making sure that I honoured who the person was and that was the story of you who on a particular day was representing an iconic character for us here at Movie World and you made a moment happen with a guest who wrote a beautiful letter that once I had read totally changed my brain about this business and this was several years ago and I know you know the story but for our listeners it was the story of her little girl who was terminally ill who they had never seen smile because of her condition and she was only a bub and this was the family's last holiday as a group and coming to the park was a big deal because it was the last time they'd be here and they encountered a group of our iconic characters on a street corner and you were there as one of them and you cradled you she was holding her daughter you gestured you then cradled her daughter she handed her daughter over her husband stepped back to take a photograph her daughter was wrestling a little bit in your arms as you cradled her and then her body went limp and she looked up at your eyes, your character's eyes, and pulled back this smile and dad got the photo. And I can still remember her writing, long after we lose our little girl, we've got that moment forever because of whoever was there that day wearing that particular character and making that moment for us and I wanted to thank you. And I remember, for me, that was a bit like a eureka moment, printing that email off as it came, reading that out in our green rooms while you were there. And it reminded me, it reminded me too, what I think I'd forgotten at that point in my life. Uh, this is the only reason we do it. It's the only reason we exist. <laughs> and on any given day, you don't know the impact you're having on another human being with the words you say, the look you give, like you just talked the moment you created but for someone to say I've never seen my child smile until the day they met you there's nothing more powerful than that that's really nicely said there's nothing more powerful than that yeah. and it reminded me of what this business is about it's only about that mm. and listening to you in the last almost hour is testament to the fact that you embody all of those things that make this business what it is. Authenticity, vulnerability, connection for others, and 
it's been wonderful to sit and capture just a little bit of that time with you here. What's ahead for Chris Guerin? You're writing music, you've written children's shows, I've seen your content on social, Chris loves you. It's a strap line on t-shirts. I've seen you out there calling people to come down to this local area. We're putting on this or we're putting on that. So you seem to be at community activations as an artist as well. Seems like you've always got something going on. What's ahead? Um, my focus now is my music. I want to I want to get out and perform, start singing. I think that's my last sort of uh, hurdle to get over as a performer, you know, because I still... It, there's not many things I get nervous about anymore getting on stage, but if I've got a mic in front of me, I have to sing. That's um, that still uh, you know, that still still gets me, you know, shaking inside, and I and I love that feeling now, you know. And I know that you know that that'll disappear one day, you know. So I'm trying to just really soak that up as much as I can, because once that's gone, you know, it's <laughs> you know, it's um, it's it actually it's. It, it is part of me, you know, part yeah. of how I perform. Um, it's, yeah, it's exciting. Mm. But music is what I love. I've, I've been playing piano since I was about five. Um, but how, just how, by, long, uh, how long on guitar? Um, I got a guitar when I was 17, so. Right. 20 something years. Yeah, wow. Right, how old am I? <laughs> it's a true life in the act of giving and in the act of performance, it's an artistic life. Yeah, no, I've been very blessed. Um, I think I said it earlier, you know, yeah, I think you've got to live the years and then look back and that's when you start to really see, you know, the gifts that you had, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the trick is then using that now, you know. Once you understand it, you don't just flick it away. I think that's when you, when you understand it, then you can really, you can really perform, mm. you can really use it, you can really give it. Um, and that's, you know... I think if I can give someone a smile, you know, or make someone feel something because I've played that chord, mm. you know, because, you know, that, there's those chords that just make your body vibrate and yes. sing. Yes. Um, that's, that's music for me. And if I could give that to someone else, then, you know. You're the real deal. Thanks for sitting down and doing this. <laughs> and so I, I can't end without saying, Mike loves you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing this, mate. I your shirt. That's beautiful. Good to talk with you. No, I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate your time and you know you've, you've actually been quite a prominent person in my career as well since I've been at Movie World and you know I was asked once by um, HR down at uh, Corumban what, what manager would you like to be like who was someone that you know made an impact in your life and and Michael Croker was the, the person I said and you know I don't know if you're aware of that um, but you know I'd like thank you for that as oh, well it's like, very kind of you, you mate know, thank you for that it means a lot to me you didn't I tell them about the time that I poured cold water in the back of your trousers? <laughs> I had that once before. Right? <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Wonderful yeah. to talk to you. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Chris loves you.